A couple of years ago, when I was a young firebrand, a little more of a firebrand than I am now, I was also give I was asked to give a short Dvar Torah at the Shabbos Kala of a family friend who is firmly in the right wing of the Orthodox community. I decided to indulge my appetite for subversion and give the most modern Orthodox Dvar Torah I could muster, a Dvar Torah which would represent the ideals most at odds with those of the right-wing Orthodox community, all while still coloring within the lines of acceptable Orthodox discourse. I wanted to see how much subversion I could get away with. Being as the Torah's reading that week was Parshat Vayeshev, which deals with uh, Yosef in uh, the story with Joseph and the Technicolor Dreamcoat, blah, 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 blah. I chose for my analysis the Rashi on Bereshit 40.23. It's a weird Rashi because it's the end of the Parsha in which Yosef asks the uh, Sarhamashkim, the uh, head butler, who he has um, asked for, who he has interpreted the dream, saying that he's going to be reinstated to Paro's court. He asks him to remember him and mention him to Paro so he can get out of jail. But the Sarhamashkim, the butler, forgets him. And Rashi asks, why did the Sarhamashkim forget him? And he says that Yosef was punished for relying on the chief butler, who he asked to remember him upon being freed from jail, true to Yosef's prediction, instead of relying upon God alone. I asked, fully aware of the current events implication of my question, how God could honestly expect Yosef to have fully relied on God? Is it not the height of folly to pass up a real opportunity to improve one's station because one expects miraculous salvation? Doesn't God expect us to put in real effort on our part instead of relying upon miracles? Are we not supposed to work for sustenance instead of waiting for help to arrive from heaven? Internally, I smiled mischievously. Quoting the biblical commentary of Rav, Rav Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin on the selfsame verse, I answered that if one examines the character of Yosef throughout the biblical text, Yosef is constantly invoking his trust and faith in God through all the troubles he goes through. For Yosef to suddenly, quote, break character, as it were, and in desperation flee, plead the chief butler for help in getting him out of prison, constituted a greater sin than it would be for any of us, perhaps because it implied that Yosef didn't really mean it when he said all those other times, that Yosef was one of those people who said Baruch Hashem a lot without really internalizing it. Expanding on this notion of certain people having certain traits that cause them to be judged differently from other people on certain issues, and having sufficiently warmed up my audience, I quoted a piece of Rav Cook on individuality and ended with a blessing to the bride and groom that they each find their true character within the confines of their marriage. I had covered so many bases of modern Orthodox right-wing Orthodox descent to my satisfaction. I'd impugned the value of simple belief, criticized the notion of total reliance upon God for sustenance, deigned to assign character flaws to biblical characters, implied that multiple truth may exist for no multiple people, and asserted the value of individuality, and I had gone away with quoting Rav Cook to boot. So imagine my trepidation when an elder member of the family approached me afterward to ask me about my Tvar Torah. Was he going to rebuke me, debate me, condemn me? I was prepared for anything. Turns out, none of the above. He came over to me and said, To clarify, you're saying that the Bechin of Yosef is Imuna Pshuta, and by not putting the, his Imuna in the Ebeshter, he was being Mavatil his Avoida, Mashain came with the Stamte Adam, who was not on Namadrega, and that everyone has their own Avoida in the Oilam, and part of marriage is finding your Avoida. I'm not going to translate that, but it turns out that's exactly what I was saying. And that was exactly what I had been trying to say with my sophisticated modern Orthodox education, just translated into the terminology of the right-wing Orthodox community. Whether he had intended to or not, he had knocked me down a peg from my smug feeling of sophistication and superiority, showing that he was fully able to assimilate the ideas I was putting forth into his own, par own particular context. Besides, however, for being the heartwarming story of the prejudices of one man being falsified on, upon the encounter with the people he stereotyped, there is an important methodological point about biblical commentary that bears mentioning and investigating. The popular conception, conception of deferring approaches to biblical commentary, which uh, I hope that I've been trying to dispel as much as possible up until this point, at least in more modern Orthodox communities, tends to see approaches of uh, biblical commentary as fitting within either of two general approaches to Judaism and Jewish texts in general. I said in general twice. 
I know. Either one is modern and sophisticated and accepting of science and academic scholarship, and is thus primarily concerned with the plain meaning of the biblical text, eschewing, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, uh, approaches with veer from the plain meaning thereof, or one is inclined towards mysticism, rejecting rational and scientific thoughts, ignoring the plain meaning of the biblical text in favor of fanciful non-textual interpretations that stretch one's credulity, and denying, you know, science and uh, not getting jobs and so on and so forth. In this uncharitable dichotomy, the differences between the modern sophisticated and the mystic are unbridgeable. A given person is one or the other. One is either a rationalist and a textualist, or a mystic and a non-textualist. In this particular instance, however, the difference between my modern, sophisticated literary reading of the rabbinic text in question and the reading of my right-wing inter interlocutor, interlocutor was not an unbridgeable gap. On the contrary, we both arrived at substantively the same conclusion. Rather, the difference between us was primarily one of vocabulary. My vocabulary for expressing my reading of the text in question was drawn primarily from secular sources, whereas his vocabulary drew off the richness of the Jewish mystical tradition. More fundamentally, however, we differed regarding the context in which we saw this text. He was viewing the text in question within the context of a wider view of Jewish tradition, particularly relating to the mystical tradition, and thus brought concepts from that tradition into his understanding of the text. On the other hand, I was viewing it primarily in isolation and on its own terms, and analyzed it using concepts that I would analyze any text with, whether it was biblical or, you know, just general literature. But neither of us was reading against the text, or disregarding the notion of the text having a true meaning. We merely were analyzing the same text from different perspectives, in different contexts, using different vocabulary, but reaching the same conclusion. If anything, the richer vocabulary which we... we with which he was acquainted allowed him to make the, better, the point better than I could, and within Jewish tradition better than I could. It is thus worth, inve worth investigating to what extent mystical biblical commentary, which will be the subject of this podcast, is really incompatible with the methods and conclusion of a reasonable and textually sensitive reader, to say nothing of modern biblical scholarship. Is it really the case that the work of mystical biblical commentators has nothing to contribute to our understanding of the biblical text? Or could it be that some of the ideas that typify our modern approach to the biblical text are expressed by mystical commentators in their own vocabulary? To that end, we will investigate the particular uh, type of commentary exhibited in the medieval mystical book par excellence, the Zohar, examining its fundamental assumptions and its unique traits. We'll then note the particular advantages of Zohar, the Zohar's biblical commentary when compared to the commentary of their medieval rationalist counterparts, focusing on trends in modern biblical scholarship that find their parallels in the Zohar. Before anything, let's talk about what the Zohar is. Uh, just a note, I'm going to be talking only about the Zohar as it relates to biblical commentary. We will tackle the ideas and philosophy of the Zohar when we, God willing, do a philosophy uh, who the heck is that guy series. But what you need to know is the Zohar is the main text of Jewish mysticism. Uh, canonically, and if you're very from, it's written by Rosh Hashim Bar Yochai, who was one of the rabbis that wrote the Mishnah, Tanayim, uh, hid it for centuries, and then revealed by Ramosha de Leon in the 13th century. Um, modern scholarship, however, uh, believes that de Leon wrote it. Uh, or, at the very least, compiled it from pre-existing sources. Uh, it contains Spanish words, it contains details about Muslim conquest, uh, the Aramaic is kind of not similar to the Aramaic that a uh, person of that era would have used. Um, so there are people who will tell you, uh, well, if you're accepting the arguments against the, Zo against the Zohar being from Rabbi Shon Bar Yochai, those same arguments would uh, get you to deny that the Torah is uh, the Torah is as old as it, as it says it is. I don't think that's necessarily the case for one reason. We have primary contemporary sources from the era that the Zohar was written that would back up the claim that Dilion wrote it. Most notably, Rav Yitzchak of Akko um, said that he, I, I don't remember exactly if he was the one who said this or he heard that someone says it. It's not the most trustworthy source in the world, but it is a source that de Leon's widow told me he wrote it, uh, that, you know, he wrote it and merely assigned it 
uh, ascribed to Rav Shum Bar Yochai. Um, if there was something of the Torah where there were people around at the Torah's writings as, I don't know what they're talking about, Ezra wrote this or something, that would be one thing. Uh, we have that with the Zohar, we don't have that with the Torah. Um, so, on the balance, scholarship says that Dilion wrote it. Does that affect its canonical status? Does that affect the respect with which uh, we ought to regard it? I don't think so. Um, you know, this will... This is a little far afield, but at a certain point, God wanted us to have this book. Um, and I uh, wanted it to become a centerpiece of the mystical tradition, and wanted the mystical tradition to exist, and it's there. And that's what we have. All right. So that's the Zohar. That's you know what I'm willing to talk about the Zohar for now. Uh, what do I have to believe? I'm not telling you to believe anything. I am doing this as part of my me medieval commentator series, Draw Your Own Conclusions. I think that the answer, the true answer might be somewhere in between. He might have compiled stuff that goes back to them, uh, to the Tanayim. Uh, but I don't think that you are religiously obligated, uh, no, matter your, no matter what your religious context, to believe that it is written by Rosham Bayochai. Uh, so let's look at some programmatic statements about biblical commentary in the Zohar. Uh, in order to better understand uh, the Zohar's relationship to the text. Um, and the Zohar is nice enough to include a bunch of programmatic statements. It's not like one of those things that, you know, you have to figure it out. Uh, the Zohar is, telling, is going to tell you what it's doing. Uh, the clearest expl uh, explication, I wrote this beforehand, and there's a bunch of words that I know how to use, but not necessarily how to pronounce, so bear with me. Um, so the clearest explication of the Zohar's biblical exegesis, uh, biblical commentar uh, commentary, is put forth in the uh, Book 3, 151a, where approaches to the Torah are compared to approaches to understanding a person. Only the wicked or stupid, says the Zohar, choose to focus on the clothes of a person, or in our allegory, the simple meaning comprising of just plain stories. Wiser people comp comprehend not just the clothes, but the body of the person, corresponding to the laws and commandments, uh, gufei ha-Torah, bodies of the Torah, rabbinic parlance. The truly righteous, however, can comprehend beyond just the clothes and body and understand the person's soul, which corresponds to the mystical secrets embedded in the Torah, which can be understood by the initiated. While at first glance this passage seems to uphold the notion that mystical commentary ignores the text in favor of mystical secrets, upon careful consideration the truth is rather more complex. The claim made by this Zohar, uh, by, by this text in the Zohar, is not that the plain text ought to be ignored, or, but that the text, when understood correctly and by the right people, initiated into the right secret societies, uh, says something which is beyond the simple meaning of the text when read literally, which means the simple reading of the text is simply insufficient to tell us the true meaning of the text. There's a true meaning of the text, there's a simple meaning of the text. The Zohar says the simple meaning of the text is not the true meaning of the text. In similar fashion, the Zohar in Book 2, 98b, asserts that God hid quote, all of his, quote, hidden matters into the Torah and cloaked them in another garment, such that only the wise would, uh, can, with their piercing gaze, see through the cloaking garment and gain access to the secrets which constitute the Torah's true meaning. Argument here, once again, is not that the text ought to be ignored, but studied as a way towards finding the embedded secrets within. On the contrary, only by reading the text and understanding the hints it gives can the initiated arrive to its true esoteric meaning. Zohar continues in his description of an allegorical love encounter between the mystic and a maiden representing the Torah, describing the mystic gradually undressing the maiden from her clothes of different layers of exegesis, the plain meaning, the homiletical, the allegorical, I'm not going to go to the definition of all those terms right now, um, finally, having bared herself to her lover, and yes, the Zohar likes using sexual imagery, uh, she says to him, do you see the illusion that I alluded to at first? And this is a direct quote. Um, i.e. the initial disclosure which corresponds to the literal sense, so many secrets were contained in it. Now he sees that nothing should be added or taken away from those words of scripture. Then the meaning of the verse is revealed as it is, not a single word should be added or deleted. End quote. 
In other words, the Zohar operates under the assumption that the true meaning of the text is not necessarily that which is conveyed by a plain reading of the text in question, but a reading of the text that incorporates certain esoteric ideas that are its true meaning. Properly understood within that interpretive universe, the text is rendered totally coherent, such that the interpreter can see that, quote, nothing should be added or deleted from the text in question. What the Zohar's commentary is, then, is not merely the figuring out of esoteric ideas from clues embedded in the text, but an approach to the biblical text that sees it rendered meaning within the specific context of the interpretive universe of the mystical tradition and its vocabulary and assumptions. In other words, it is actually a form of textual interpretation, but one that sees a text within the particular context of the mystical tradition. I'm using a lot of big words here, but I will explain with an example. Uh, the Zohar in uh, Book 3, 140b, tackles a question which has engaged the interests of many biblical commentators. Uh, you have uh, Avram and Sarai going down to Egypt, later to be Avram and Sarah, but I'm using the, uh, the names as they were at that point. And Avram tells the Egyptians, this is my sister. It's not his sister uh, because he's married to her and he's not married to his sister. So how was Avram allowed to lie to the Egyptians and claim that Sarai was his sister instead of his wife? So numerous commentators give numerous answers, that it was allowed because of a threat to his life, or because by some legal definition he was her sister, among others. The Zohar's answer is to, by recourse to two biblical verses pertaining to sisters, identify the sister being pointed to by Avram not as Sarai, but as the Shechina, the you know, representation of the divine. Uh, leaving aside the feasibility of this answer, uh, especially within the context of the story, the Zohar has presented an internally consistent explanation of the text in question by drawing from the terminology of the mystical tradition and its larger universe to clear up a troublesome element within the text. The problem of Avram lying is solved by identification of the term sister with the mythical, mystical concept of the Shechina and the placement of the story within the mis mystical universe. More importantly, this is not merely some kind of homiletic that does not see itself as interpreting the text as much as being inspired by it. This isn't, you know, the Zohar saying that, like, and so, too, the Shechina should always be with you. The, uh, on the contrary, a textual question is being answered by asserting that when Avram said sister, he meant the Shechina, albeit within the interpretive universe that makes such an answer possible. Is this really that much far-fetched from saying Avram was really relying on an obscure point of law to say that legally Sarai was his sister? I'm not sure. I, I, I'm not sure it's that that much far-fetched. Uh, that much far-fetched far than like a legalistic answer. The Zohar is answering uh, a question within its own assumptions and within its own contextual universe. So thus, Zoh uh, you know, Zoharic mystical biblical commentary that's a mouthful, it's going to be shortened later on, uh, is not the absence of textualism, but a textualism that sees the text as existing within the interpretive universe of the mystical tradition, with its own conceptual vocabulary, its own assumptions about what is true, and its particular notion of what the text is meant to accomplish. Here's the thing, this is not all that different from the commentaries of the medieval rationalists and the fundamentals of their approach. As we saw last time, the medieval rationalists also saw the text as necessarily existing within a specific interpretive universe, except that it was the limits of reason and the dictates of medieval philosophy, rather than the conceptual universe created by the Jewish mystical tradition. Both the rationalists and the mystics saw the biblical text within a particular context with its own notion of truth and its own conceptual vocabulary. Both the rationalists and the mystics gave themselves license to assert the true meaning of the text was only understood within their conceptual universe, despite what might be its plain meaning. The difference between the two camps was not one of textual approach. One wasn't more textually inclined than the other, but one of epistemological assumptions, or you know, assumptions as to, as to what is truth. The mystics tended towards a view of the world more inclined towards uh, the, the mystics tended towards a view of the world more inclined <clears throat> towards mythological tropes and theosophy. Um, you know, theosophy is the belief that uh, you know uh, God God's uh, uh, you know what I'll cut this out. Uh, while the rationalists tended towards a view of the world guided by the dictates of medieval rationalism. Neither of those approaches ought to be conflated with a pure textualist approach, 
which are to interpret the text on its own terms rather than within a particular conceptual universe. But neither should e either approach be seen as non-textual. Both approaches interpret the text in light of their unique set of assumptions and fit the text within their own conceptual universe. If, however, it is in the, indeed the case that what separates mystical biblical commentary and rationalist biblical commentary is a set of assumptions they bring to the table, rather than their fundamental approach to the text, then in cases where the set of assumptions mysticism brings to the table more closely matches the assumptions of the biblical text than the set of rationalist assumptions, it might very well be the case that the interpretation of the mystical commentator will be more compelling on a pure textual level. In other words, when the Torah is not rationalist, mystical commentators will be more equipped to understand the plain meaning of the text than the rationalists who get bogged down trying to get the Torah to fit into their, into their philosophical system. By way of example, let's look at the interpretations of Bereshit uh, 6.2. Okay? Um, and the Bnei Elohim, which literally means sons of God, which, uh-oh, uh, saw that the daughters of man were fair, and they took from whoever they wanted as wives. So in this story, that serves as a prelude to the story of the flood. Uh, beings known as the Bnei Elohim, which, again, literally means sons of God, or possibly even sons of gods, uh, start taking all the attractive people women. Uh, it is eminently reasonable to assume, despite the position of the rest of the Torah of, on the notions of other gods before me, that these Bnei Elohim are some sort of divine beings. That is reasonable on a textual level, uh, especially if you're throwing out any notion that like it has to be consistent with the ideas in the rest of the Torah. Uh, this is especially true when considering verse 4 continues by claiming the products of these Bnei Elohim people-woman unions were Hagiborim Asher Meolam Anshe Hashem, the mighty men of old, men of renown. These Bnei Elohim were something beyond normal human beings. That much seems clear. And if you look at the way that they were interpreted in the Second Temple era, when there's, you know, Madrashim around, uh, they, uh, they seem to assume an identification of the Bnei Elohim as some sort of divine beings. Um, so, they, and some sort of divine beings, possibly gigantic beings. Rationalist commentators, however, armed with their assumptions about the incorporeality and indivisibility of God, a belief in angels as God's messengers, allegories as slash allegories for natural forces, a belief and a belief in a natural rational order, which doesn't include giants, interpret this cryptic term as referring to noblemen or judges or other terms while, that, while running against the plain meaning of the text, make the text coherent within a certain rationalist worldview. Zohar, on the other hand, has no truck with this, and it seems to reserve the idea of the Bnei Elohim being some sort of divine beings in either of two ways. The first, offered by Rabbi Yitzchak as an explanation for the equally cryptic term Nephilim, which occurs later in uh, the Torah, and consequently identified by Rabbi Huda as also being called uh, Bnei Elohim, posits the existence of two fallen angels, Azza and Azael, who arrive on earth and proceed to reproduce with the people-woman producing giants. Rabbi Chia, on the other hand, identifies the Bnei Elohim as the offspring of Cain, who was conceived by a union of Chava with the demon Samael. Thus, the offspring of Cain carry within them, for lack of a better term, a demonic gene, which means a different term than that which is usually used to describe humanity. Uh, a demonic gene would means a different term than that which is usually used to describe humanity, humanity is necessary. Thus, they are called Bnei Elohim. Whether one prefers the Rabbi Yitzchak Rabbi Huda explanation of Bnei Elohim as the giants that are products of human-angel crossbreeding, or Rabbi Chia's explanation of Bnei Elohim as demon-human hybrids, it cannot be doubted that these explanations are more satisfactory explanations of the text than any given rational, rationalist explanation thereof. They manage to account for the uniqueness of the terminology, as well as the overall theme of forbidden boundaries being crossed in ways that the rationalist explanations fail to do. The rationalist orientation, set of assumptions, and interpretive universe is simply less equipped to read the text more straightforwardly than the mystical interpreter in a specific, specific instances when the biblical text does not conform to a rationalistic set of assumptions. On the other hand, the notion of malicious forces, angelic, demonic, or even divine, is totally not out of place within the mystical epistemology, within the mystical interpretive universe, and as such, they are better equipped to interpret texts that imply the existence of such beings. To recap what we've said so far, 
There is an assumption that the differences between rationalist and mystical biblical commentary are primarily that of fundamentally different approaches to the text and its plain meaning, where rationalists are more concerned with the text and mystics are less concerned with the text. This assumption is just plainly not true. Mystical commentary is indeed concerned with putting forth a coherent meaning of the text. It just has a different set of assumptions as to what constitutes that meaning, seeing the text as meaningful when placed within the context of the Jewish mystical tradition. This is not altogether different from the commentary of the medieval rationalists, who saw the text as meaningful when placed within the context of medieval philosophy and its particular assumptions about truth and reason. Neither of these approaches can be accurately described as pure textualism, which sees the text purely on its own terms. As such, there are indeed instances where mystical commentary is closer to a purely textual understanding of the text, when its particular set of assumptions and its interpretive universe is closer to the assumptions of the biblical text being analyzed. Pure textualism ought not to be equated with rationalism, but ought to be thought of as one approach of biblical uh, commentary alongside mystical and rationalist approaches. To this point, however, <clears throat> mystical commentary has been fighting more or less a rigged fight, having been pitted not against our modern, sophisticated, and advanced rationalism and scholarship, but the rationalism of the medieval era. While we have indeed managed to show that very little separates the Rabag and the Zohar, at least as far as their approach to the biblical text goes, and we have managed to illustrate that the author of the Zohar was no idiot, uh, we have yet to show the relevance of a mystical biblical commentary to the field of modern biblical scholarship. What utility, of what utility is mystical commentary, which comes to the text with a certain set of assumptions and a certain descriptive vocabulary and situates it within a certain interpretive universe, when what we want is the text is understood on its own terms and in its own context through the lens of scholarship. Why do we care that it's better than medieval, uh, the, that it's better than medieval rationalist commentary? It's not saying that much. Mystical commentary may be able to stack up against medieval philosophical commentary, owing to their fundamental similarity in regards to not being purely textual. Is it no different than scholarly investigation of the text as it would have been understood in its original context? Short answer is no, most likely not. Uh, the two modes of textual interpretation are founded on totally different assumptions, have fundamentally different goals, and accept much different sources of truth. Mystical commentary is an obviously bad replacement for biblical scholarship and vice versa. However, there are elements of mystical biblical commentary that, owing to some of the unique features of the universe of Jewish mysticism, that interpretive universe that I've been talking about so much, prefigure some of the current trends in modern biblical scholarship in unexpected ways that are interesting enough to explore further and consider. Just as the conclusions of mystical commentators line up better with the plain meaning of the text when the text contextual universe lines up with that of Jewish mysticism, when the text is talking about like angelic beings or demons or whatever, um, so too there are instances when the assumptions and conclusions of modern biblical scholarship are much more readily assimilated into a mystical approach to the text than other approaches which are more rationalist or even more invested in pure textualism. So let's see two examples of this sort of overlap, and then we'll think about what this uh, tells us about modern approaches to biblical text. The first such area of overlap between mystical approaches to the biblical text and the methods and conclusions of modern biblical scholarship is the influence of our newfound knowledge of the world of the ancient Near East uh, upon, our understand, uh, upon our understanding of the context of the biblical text. Uh, in particular, our knowledge of the awareness of the world of the ancient of ancient Near East mythology has enriched our understanding of the meanings and context of many biblical stories, themes, or even laws, allowing us to see how the Bible borrows, differs from, and even transforms ideas from the ancient Near East mythological universe. Of the various schools of traditional approaches to the biblical text, the mystical interpretive universe has the most similarity to the universe of the ancient Near East mythology, sharing beliefs such as theurgy, like the ability for you to say uh, words uh, to, you know, force God to do something, uh, the existence of evil as an independent entity, uh, creation through emanation, that, you know, uh, creation happened by, you know, this emanating from this and this, I know that explains a lot, okay, and the power of magic. Beliefs that may be an anathema 
to other schools of thought within Judaism. Like, the Ramam's Judaism has very little in common with the mythology of the ancient Near East. Uh, and if you asked him about this, he would go, yes, well, duh, that's the idea. We don't want to be like the pagans. That's why we have very different ideas from the pagans. However, that may very well be true, and that may very well be justified, and that, you know, obviously, like, the Ramam's happy about this, that does make him less useful when we're trying to figure out the meaning of stuff that depends on understanding the ancient Near East mythological basis. And that's not claiming that, like, you know, the Torah is really a Vodazara or really paganism. I mean, it's not even claiming that, uh, that... Uh, you know, the mystical tradition is even paganism. It's saying that, like, in order to understand the kind of things that the Torah is talking about, uh, there is stuff that we need to understand about paganism, and that, you know, uh, the mystical tradition has some things in common with that, or is closer to the sort of impulses that, uh, that motivate that, Okay. Uh, not trying to say that mysticism is a vodazara. Really not trying to say that. Uh, so in instances where the biblical text is properly understood within the context of its similarities with the ancient Near East interpretive universe, mystical approaches are often surprisingly good at detecting such ideas. Uh, so one example I'll give you uh, is the phenomenon of serpent myths and references to serpent myths that are scattered in the biblical text. I'll hold on a second. We'll get. Uh, I'll get to showing you where. Okay, but let's understand a little bit about Avodazara. Okay, an essential feature of the ancient Near East mythological universe is a combat myth cosmogony. Cosmogony means creation story, uh, featuring a battle of the gods with a fearsome sea monster which paves the way for the creation of the world, which signifies the victory of the forces of order over the forces of chaos. By way of example, in the Canaanite creation myth, the Enuma Elish, the world is formed as a result of a battle between forces led by the god Marduk against the ferocious monster Tiamat, representation of the chaotic uh, primeval ocean. Uh, you know, the, the, you know uh, the, the ocean that exists prior to everything. Okay. After defeating Tiamat, Marduk clefts, clefts her corpse in twain, I do love saying that out loud, with, uh, with one half becoming the heavenly firmament and the other becoming the foundation of the earth. While the function of the first uh, you know, uh, creation story in Beratius may very well be to polemicize against this mythical view of the universe, uh, and it very well be, may be the case that the uh, first creation story, the, the most important feature of it is that it's boring. It's that, you know, God created this and there was, you know, and God created this and that God created this. There's no combat. There's no, you know, uh, you know forces of disorder that need to be victory, uh, victor uh, have victory over. There's no, like, you know, thing that God has to fight in order for the world to be created. God just creates the world because... God just creates the world. There's nothing in opposition to him, okay? However, even though that may be the case, that uh, the Torah seems to reject that in its very first parak, um, the idea of some kind of serpent-like creature representing the forces of chaos and evil uh, are scattered throughout the biblical text. First of all, most obvious, the, you know, uh, the tempting serpent of the second uh, Beresha's creation story uh, but less obvious, because, you know, we don't really do Tanakh, uh, Nakh education so well, uh, we have God slaying sea monsters in Yeshaya 27.1 and 51.9-10 and Talim 74.13-14. Even within the first Beratius creation story, reference is made to this particular motif, albeit polemically. Uh, in Bereshit 121, God is said to have created the great sea monsters, which implicitly counters the notion that God would have had to defeat these great sea monsters in order, for, uh, in order to establish order and creation. The mythological dimension of these references, with their relation to creation and, thematics, and the thematic symbolism of the serpent or sea monster as representative of chaos, evil, and disorder, is missed by many biblical commentators, Probably because the Torah did a too good of a job of getting us away from Avodah Zarah. 
right? Most commentators will see these references purely in terms of symbolizing specific nations that are enemies of the Israelites, which, while often technically correct in the point of the analogy being made, miss out on all the important mythological dimensions of the specific details of that analogy. It may very well be the case that Yeshai is comparing, you know, the sea monster to Egypt, but lacking the context of the ancient Near East, you don't miss out on the you miss out on the fact that Yeshaya is saying that you know uh, Egypt is like the primordial chaos and evil, right? Let's uh, by way of example we mentioned Yeshaya. Let's look at Yeshaya. Okay, the commentaries on Yeshaya twenty seven one. Here's the pasuk: Bayamahu Yifkod Hashem Bercharbo Hakasheh Hagdolav Hachazaka Al Livyatan Nachash Bariach Al Livyatan Nachash Akalaton Vaharagas Hatanin Asher Bayam. And on that day, God will, with his great and mighty sword, punish the Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and the Leviathan, the torturous serpent, and he will strike the dragon that is in the sea. Leviathan, dragon, yeah, it's, you know, sea monsters. Okay. While it is true that the event of God engaging the sea monsters in combat is put forth as a future event and is thus properly understood as prophecy of the redemption of Israel from hostile nations, Yeshua is drawing off an established mythological motif of Cosmogonical. Again, I wrote this first. I don't know how to pronounce a lot of these words. Cosmogonical, you know, creation combat with serpents and sea monsters to illustrate his prophetic vision. Just as there is the belief that the gods fought off the forces of chaos to make creation possible, so too God will fight the enemies of Israel to make redemption possible. That is most likely what this meant to the audience it was speaking to. The commentaries on this verse, however, focus primarily on which nations the name monsters are supposed to represent. Bring a couple of examples. Rashi identifies them as Mitzrayim, Usher, and Edom. Radak identifies them as presenting Edom, Yishmael, and Hodu. None of the typical, typically cited biblical commentators pick up on the implications of the uh, creation time combat motif being used here, which is the identification of the hostile nations with primeval chaotic evil that must be defeated by God. Zohar, on the other hand, in a very long and complex passage in 2.34a to 35b, puts forth a fully realized mythological vision of the significance of the references to the serpent myth in the biblical text. The passage, summarized to the best of my ability because it is long and confusing, sees the great serpent, which is noted to be a symbolic representation of Egypt, as being the most important of a troop of ten sea monsters. These sea monsters originate from the left side, of the divine hierarchy from the gradation of Gevura. Again, I'm not discussing the philosophy of the Zohar as much as I'm discussing its biblical commentary. We will get into the philosophy of the Zohar in a different thing. Uh, all I need you to understand is that, you know, it's it's using its own terminology here, okay? As dr so the Sumanzers originated from the left side of the divine hierarchy from the gradation of Gevura, uh, harsh judgment, as drops emerging from a certain channel which becomes streams and then nine rivers, each of which are embodied by a particular type of sea monster, which are seen as the negative shelves, shells sorry, of the supreme divine hierarchy. The tenth sea monster is the Great Serpent, which periodically swims into the Great Basin on high to gather all the streams of divinity into one abundant pool which presumably feeds the other nine rivers. The passage continues by noting that the phrase God created is used for creation itself, and the creation of the sea monsters in Bereshit 121, which I've mentioned before, indicating some connection of the term God created with sea monsters. It is then noted that the phrase appears ten times in the beginning of the book of Bereshit, and is then adduced from biblical passage, passages and rabbinic texts that each utterance is indicative of a battle which God fought and subdued one of the ten sea monsters. In the course of this analysis, the crooked serpent of Yeshua 27.1 is thought to have been created to confront the great sea serpent of the sea, but does not slay it on account of misplaced arrogance attributed to this crooked serpent from a biblical verse. The crooked serpent is further identified as the snake of the Garden of Eden, all of which seems to indicate that the world of evil symbolized by the existence of the ten sea monsters is one of division and antagonism, which only God and his supreme power can, uh, supreme power can overcome. Taken altogether, this passage is startlingly on target in its understanding of the mytho mythological significance of serpents and sea monsters in light of the ancient Near East evidence. The serpent is seen as symbolic of evil, chaos, and division, 
and the world is created as a result of a battle in which the forces of chaos, represented by the serpent, are defeated by the creating god, representing forces of order. The mythological significance of the sea monsters created in Bereshit 121 is properly apprehended. Furthermore, the context of Yeshaya 27.1 is properly understood as not just referring to a specific nation hostile to the Israelites, but the specific forces of chaotic evil that nation represents, one in fact connected to the original sin of Adam, which must be defeated by the supreme might and power of God to effect a redemptive era. And again, if you didn't understand all of that metaphor, allegory, uh, you're in good company because I didn't either, uh, for the most part. Um, I got, you know, the, the important part is that it's engaging with that sort of serpent myth. So, this correspondence of mystical, mis, uh, mystical biblical exegesis commentary and modern biblical scholarship is not merely a coincidence, but the effect of the conceptual vocabulary and interpretive universe of the Jewish mystical tradition being surprisingly similar to that of the ancient Near East mythological universe, which serves as a context for many biblical texts. In this particular case, the notion of an independent force of chaotic evil that needs to be defeated by God, present in the biblical text as an element borrowed from the mythology of the ancient Near East, is kept alive in the Jewish mystical tradition. This idea, however, is simply absent in the conceptual vocabulary of other schools of thought within Judaism, and they're consequently ill-equipped to notice that particular theme in the biblical text. Another feature of modern biblical scholarship prefigured in mystical a biblical commentary is that of literary analysis of the biblical text. Having freed itself from the analysis of biblical text as a mere record of history, modern biblical scholarship has employed the tools of literary analysis to great effect in understanding not just the plain meaning of the text in front of us, but the macro themes, elements that are woven through the narratives of the biblical text as a whole. Through this approach, though, sorry, Though this approach comes from the scholarly world, which sees a biblical text as fragmentary, the literary approach tends to analyze a biblical text as an organic whole which has embedded themes within it. By way of example, literary analysis of the biblical text reads the story of Yosef's sale by his brothers as not only a record of a man being sold into slavery by his brothers, but as part of a grand narrative which includes the theme of sibling rivalry in the Beratian narratives, which itself may be indicative of the political realities of ancient Israel. Though there are occasions where Midrashim uh, uh, in rabbinic texts are a reasonable approximation of this methodology, by and large, regular textually focused biblical commentators are ill-equipped to make use of this methodology, owing to their seeing the events of the biblical text as a historical record rather than artfully produced literature especially if such you know, thematic analysis is seen as referencing events or ideological climates that would be you know, incommensurable with the idea of the biblical text being revealed at, uh, at Sinai. By way of example, uh, it would be nonsensical for someone like Rushbaum to see the events of the sale of Yosef to be referencing the relationship between the tribes of uh, Israel in the First Temple era. Uh, both because the sale of Yosef was an event that happened, according to Rushbaum, and because the Torah was written before such things could possibly be referenced. There are exceptions to that rule. Rashi will occasionally jump out of the timeline in order to make these things. Ramban uh, has a whole, you know, uh, device that he uses to do this sort of analysis, Masa of Osim and Labanim, like we saw in our Ramban podcast. Um, but mystical uh, commentary however, resides in an interpretive universe with a plain meaning of the text comprising, in the case of narrative, the mere record of events and the mere description of the characters involved is, as we've seen above, not the true meaning of the text. Rather, the true meaning of the text is the cosmic and esoteric secrets known to the mystical initiate which underlies the plain meaning of the text. In other words... The significance of a biblical event or a biblical character is not their mere occurrence or existence, but their place within the uh, you know, mystical view of God's plan within history. This allows events and characters from a wide scope of the biblical text to be grouped together thematically by a shared association with a particular mystical concept or vocabulary in a way rather amenable to the kind of literary analysis done by modern biblical scholarship. We saw this a little bit with the Ramban 
as I said, uh, as I said above, Masa Avosim and Labanim is able to connect narratives with the Avos to later events, allowing the Ramban to read literarily. Zohar just takes this to another level because it assumes that the descriptions of the events are almost besides the point. So by way of example, let's look at a possible thematic element in the Torah uh, relating to the Davidic, dyna- uh, Davidic mo- uh, monarchy that seems to wind its way through a very large uh, scope of the bib- biblical text. That is, think for a second, nearly every instance where we see a forerunner of the Davidic line, an ancestor of David and Melech, producing offspring in that line, uh, it is in the wake of either actual sexual impropriety or something rather close to it and often includes an active role taken by the woman in this uh, by the woman in this venture it begins with lot being seduced by his daughters in the wake of the destruction of sodom producing the moabite nation from which part of david's ancestry would spring it continues with tamar seducing her father-in-law yehuda by pretending to be a prostitute almost being put to death for her trouble it continues still, centuries later, with Ruth uh, confronting Boaz on the threshing floor, demanding that he fulfill his you know, obligation to marry her, which does not cross the line into sexual impropriety, but certainly it dances right up to it. Uh, finally, David's heir, Shlomo, is born from an adulterous union with Bathsheba. Uh, there is enough instances here of similar events occurring along the Davidic line to indicate some sort of intentional theme running through the biblical text. Yet most of the typically cited biblical commentators fail to pick up on this, either because their focus is primarily on the page in front of them rather than the biblical text as a whole, or because viewing the biblical text primarily as a record of history does not allow them to interpret the events in characters or literary fashion, or, uh, you know, most simple answer, it's kind of uncomfortable to talk about, like, you know, uh, the ancestors of the uh, of David Melech and the Davidic line, which will... Uh, uh, have the Messiah uh, committing sexual impropriety or, you know, dancing right up to it. Um, like, this is something I remember, like, going, hmm, about, uh, and then being frustrated that none of the classic commentators really address it. The Zohar, however, does. It's able to group all these events and characters together as representative of a particular mystical concept that goes beyond the plain meaning of the text, encompassing the wide scope of the thematic thrust of the biblical narrative. In a, you know, uh, homily, which is a thing, a Dvar Torah or a drasha, okay? On Parshat Vayera, uh, Zohar 109b110a, the Zohar uses the peculiar term tikla, literally meaning some sort of water wheel, to describe this particular theme of seeming sexual impropriety being involved in the formation of the Davidic slash messianic line. The Zohar describes the incestual seduction of Lot by his daughters by reference to this Tikla wheel, by whose revolutions God transforms human deeds into elements of his divine messianic plan. This event is then connected to the story of Ruth by way of textual allusion, noting that biblical terms for rising, uh, the, the root kum, play a prominent role in each of those narratives. Um, uh, concluding that both events, even the extremely troubling incestual union of Lot and his daughters, were divinely assisted for the the purpose of raising uh, the Davidic monarchy and the eventual messianic redemption. And again, that very well may be pshat. Uh, It very well may be intentional by the author of Root to use the language of Lot and his daughters uh, uh, in his story. Okay, or her story, it might be. Okay, uh, the implication of this passage is the imagery of God operating a wheel that raises up human action like water in a water wheel and lifts it to messianic significance, lifting up like the lowest kind of uh, you know human action and lifting up to the highest. So, academic Ruth Kara Ivanov, uh, and uh, thank you to Jean Mantanki. Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, for pointing me to this when I was writing my paper on this. So she expands on this idea significantly, uh, and she draws off other Zohar uh, references to the Davidic Messianic line and the term Tikla. Uh, And she places this thematic element the Zohar notices embedded in the biblical narrative um, of redemption coming about through unconventional means in the context of mythological motifs 
concerning the resurrective power of kings, who are able to overcome physical or moral death in their quest for redemption, as well as feminine motifs of birth as a painful and traumatic process. The members of the Davidic line are thus able to raise up sinful acts to redemptive levels and overcome the circumstances of their birth, resurrecting themselves in the depths of sin and degra degradation, being continually rebirthed by the acts of daring women whose challenging of conventional sexual roles is the vehicle of God's redemptive plan. Besides for being a compelling read of the Zoharic text in question, Kara Ivanov's reading of the qualities of the Davidic Messianic line is a compelling literary analysis of the biblical text, accounting for what seems to be a noticeable, purposeful thematic element that winds its way through the whole of the biblical text. We have thus enumerated two different areas in which mystical biblical exegesis overlaps with modern biblical scholarship. The first is that of the placement of biblical texts in the context of ancient Near East mythology, where mysticism's unique set of, uh, you know, assumptions about truth and uh, theology uh, more closely mirrors the ancient Near East interpretive universe than any other school of thought. The second is that of literary analysis of the biblical text, where the mystical approach to interpretation of the biblical text is uniquely suited to pick up on literary macro themes, owing to its unique mode of interpretation, its expansive conceptual vocabulary, and the wider scope of its commentary when compared to other approaches uh, to the biblical text. So let's quickly go over our criteria, uh, our, you know, evaluating criteria for biblical commentaries, and then we'll do our big finish discussing the significance of what we talked about. Uh, number one, textual independence versus traditional text. The degree to which a given commentator sees a biblical text as independent work, or one that could only be understood within the context of the oral tradition, very much towards uh, traditional text, uh, especially when the oral tradition is uh, uh, includes the oral uh, is includes the mystical tradition. Literal meaning versus symbolic meaning. The degree to which a given commentator sees a text as being meant to be understood on a literal level, being understood as representing something beyond the text, such as cabalistic philosophical ideas or a response to current events or political issues. Um, so this is all the way towards symbolic meaning. It sees symbolic meaning as the main meaning. Rational interpretation versus unmediated text. The degree to which a given commentator is willing to reinterpret text to better align with rational principles as opposed to leaving the problematic parts unchanged. Uh, unmediated text, but again, uh, it's mediated in different ways. It's mediated towards symbolic reading rather than you know rational reading. Okay? Linguistic omnisignificance versus linguistic contextualism. The degree to which a given biblical commentator is inclined to see every word as worthy of interpretation versus allowing words to be understood in context of natural speech, and is especially relevant for poetry. Uh, it's all the way towards linguistic omnisignificance. Uh, it may even be credited with uh, inventing the idea. Uh, uh, the Zohar sees the entire Torah as names of God, uh, and uh, it sees every word as being worthy of interpretation. Uh, it's all the way towards linguistic omnisignificance. On the page versus by the book, uh, in other words, the degree to which is interpreting just what's in front of you on the page versus interpreting with a wider scope by the book, very much by the book, and its you know particular mode of interpretation allows it to be so. So first of all, let's re uh, so before we get to the big summit, let, let's recap. We went over a number of ways mystical commentary and rationalist modern scholarly commentary are not necessarily in conflict. Uh, mystical commentary shares a mode of reading with rationalist commentary, if not the same assumptions about truth. More interestingly, mystical commentary overlaps with modern scholarship and it's more closely approximating the conceptual universe of the ancient Near East in the macro lens with which it is able to look at the biblical text to notice literary themes with a conceptual language to express them in a religious context. The question is, who cares? Certainly from the perspective of modern scholarship, this conclusion is at best interesting, more likely meaningless. Just because mystical approaches to the biblical text occasionally get it right does not change one's evaluation of that approach. If you think mysticism is nonsense, then you're like, okay, stop clock is right twice a day, don't tell time by it, though. Uh, from the perspective of the religious believer, however, 
the conclusions in this, uh, you know, investigation may be much more meaningful. Modern biblical scholarship has raised many challenges to the person of committed faith, from the authorship of the Torah to its historicity, to its scientific plausibility, to its consonance with rabbinic interpretation. This is not to place a deal with those questions yet. Uh, suffice to say, each area of questioning brings different challenges and different answers. What is interesting to note is that the response of the Orthodox communities that are confronted most with these questions uh, is to promote the primacy of a shot-oriented approach, a simple meaning-based approach, uh, approach, one that demands the plain literal meaning, uh, you know, rejecting interpretations or approaches that veer from that goal. Commentators like Rush Baum and Ibn Ezra are lauded, Rashi is somewhat de-emphasized, and mystical approaches are entirely ignored at best. There are many possible reasons as to why this approach is seen as the ideal approach to combat, com combat the challenges of modern biblical scholarship. It promotes basic literacy of the text. It's a more intuitively logical approach to reading a text. And perhaps most importantly, but a little cynically, it feels like scholarship. It, you know, feels like you're rejecting, uh, you know, prior biases in favor of, like, uh, scholarly investigation. Uh, and it also challenges the notion that those who reject faith can be modern and sophisticated in their approach, uh, you know, and it challenges the notion that only those who reject faith can be modern and sophisticated in their approach to the biblical text. There's much merit to that. I'm certainly not one to denigrate that. What I've attempted to argue, though, is that the possibility we've gone about it all wrong. First of all, as we've seen, the distinctions between what mystical approaches to the text do and what rationalist or even purely textual approaches to the text do is fuzzier than we might believe. Mystical approaches do not reject purely textual reads of the text as much as they have a different interpretive universe in which they see the text, an interpretive universe in which they are occasionally able to make much more compelling interpretations than other approaches. To label the pro uh, approach of Ibn Ezra as pshat and that of the Zohar as something other than pshat is already making certain assumptions about what is true and what is worthwhile. Second of all, and more importantly, there are areas in which the conclusions of modern, modern biblical scholarship are more readily assimilated into the religious interpretive universe of the mystical believer than that of a rationalist of a, or a pure textualist, owing to the unique qualities of mystical commentaries, which gives us a greater inter interpretive toolbox, a bigger conceptual, a conceptual vocabulary to work with. We examine two such areas of overlap, but there very well could be more. Perhaps the modern orthodox investment in pure textualism as a response to biblical scholarship uh, in its attempt to mimic the traits of academic scholarship has paid too little att uh, attention to the notion of a religious framework into which one can place these, those conclusions and preserve religious faith. And perhaps mystical approaches to biblical texts can provide just that framework. Even for people who do accept the hypothesis, uh, hypotheses of biblical scholarship. Has there been any attempt to integrate those ideas into any sort of robust religious conceptual framework, one that, you know, is, uh, grounds those ideas in uh, a tradition in Judaism and also allows one to maintain, uh, you know, a faith that justifies practice? I'm not so sure. Going back to the story I started with, we may be assuming there is only one way to express a religious idea, leaving out the possib possibility that there is an entire conceptual universe we have failed to draw from. And I say this because I imagine a lot of my listeners are the type of people who haven't much love lost for the mystical tradition in Judaism. And certainly the mystical tradition in Judaism has been abused and is occasionally used, uh, you know, badly. Uh, to justify certain things, but it's worth mentioning, no area of Torah, no stream of our tradition is useless or beneath you. Uh, if there's one thing I hope you know, people get out of this podcast, it's that, you know, just because something's not your approach doesn't mean that it's useless or, or you know, ungrounded. 
And the more that we can appreciate a diverse array of approaches to the text and to, to Judaism in general, the better off we can be. If we're going to deal with the challenges ahead, let's go at it with the biggest toolbox we can get. All right. Thank you for listening. Um, we are going to continue. I believe we're going to continue with, uh, you know, we're done with the, mis- uh, the, the medievals, I think. Uh, this, this is the amount of medieval commentaries I wanted to cover. Uh, we're going to go ahead and start with the modern commentaries, which I, uh, is my area of expertise for the most part. Um, we're going to start, unless something changes with the Abarbanel, uh, who may be the first modern biblical commentator in a lot of different ways. Um, hopefully there'll be less turnaround time and, uh, hope to, uh, um, hope to hear uh, good feedback, and if you like what you hear, um, then uh, and if you like me to keep doing this, uh, you know, like and comment on our pages, and uh, donate to the Patreon if you're financially able to do so. Uh, thank you so much for listening, and uh, I'll see you next time. <laughs>